So a while back, I was at men's Bible study. I went to the Friday morning group, and I had work right after that because it meets at 6, then I have to leave right at 8 o'clock to get to work. Well, we had this new person join our group, and in the group, the person admitted, hey, I'm new to church. I'm only here because my wife called me to come, and I don't know anything about this. You know, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I'm just new. I'm here to, to see what you guys have. And it was a good conversation. It was a great sermon from Pastor PJ. We had good discussion. Um, and then after the group, I quickly just left, right? I thought, okay, I need to get to work. I have a priority that I need to go. I need to go. Uh, I'm, I'm in sales. I need to get to my customers and I need to uh, meet those appointments instead of having this opportunity to talk to this new guy who joined our group. Well, Thankfully, there was someone in our group that had their priorities right and did talk to this young man, and he, in fact, became a Christian that day. He shared the gospel with him, and our, the, the guy that was in our group shared that message with us um, in our group me text and said, hey, he became a Christian. You could, see, you could feel the conviction that I had over me. I, I, had, I didn't think, I mean, maybe that couldn't have happened, right? But it couldn't happen if I didn't open my mouth and share the gospel. My priorities were completely not aligned with God's. I was focused on my own needs. I was focused on what I want to do instead of focusing on what God wanted me to do. I rejected that clear opportunity to evangelize to this new member to our small group, and I felt that conviction. Man, I'm telling you this story because I want you not to make that same mistake that I made. So we're in John 4 tonight, and we just, uh, just to give you a little refresher, you guys just talked about uh, the woman at the well. Jesus talked to the woman at the well. She was married five times. Jesus exposed her sin and revealed himself as the promised Messiah to her. And what did she do? She ran into the town, and she proclaimed the message to those people. Well, let's open up our Bibles. Let's look together at John 4. Let's get our eyes on the text right now. Let's look at it. John 4, we're going to look through 31 through 42. And I'd love for you to take notes as well. We have the handout in front here. We have three points tonight. So I'm going to read this text with a little bit of commentary for you guys. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Right? Rabbi, is, he's a Jewish teacher. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I find this piece really funny because the disciples are kind of like, uh, did he get something grubhubbed in? Is there some camel that brought Mediterranean food to Jesus to satisfy his hunger? No, Jesus, they're very confused in fact, they're confused because they're focused so much on their physical needs and not on the spiritual needs. When Jesus has his mind focused on the spiritual here, he's focused on doing God's work. And that's what he says here in verse 34. He says, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is focused on doing the will of the father, doing God's work. In verse 6, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, of chapter 4, he says uh, he's wearied, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he needs sustenance, but instead Jesus is satisfied and sustained by doing the will of the Father. Verse 35, 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Right, so there's four months with the harvest. This is probably around December or January. And Jesus is kind of doing like a physical illustration, like an in-person illustration where he's pointing to the harvest behind him. The, the crops are, are, I don't know how tall they're all, but they're, they're tall, and they have a, a, the white head on top of it when you know that they're ready to be harvested. Well, also, if you guys briefly look at verse 30, he said, they went out of the town and were coming to him, right? And then verse 31 says, meanwhile. So we know that the Samaritans are now coming to see Jesus because the woman just proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. They're like, what is this all about? I need to come see this. And Jesus is saying, lift up your eyes. Look, they're right there. They have these white robes and Jesus is saying they're white for the harvest. These people are ready to hear the gospel. Verse 36. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. So we have sowers. Sowers are the people that are investing in these unbelievers, taking the time. They're, uh, they're sharing the gospel with them. They're spending resources. They're putting a lot of time and effort into uh, converting these people. And what we know is that it was most likely both the Old Testament prophets that were sowing into the Samaritans, right? Because they were, they were aware of the Old Covenant. They were aware of the Old Testament. Um, and then it was also John the Baptist. In, in John 3, we see that he was in this same town investing in these people, sowing into these people. Okay, so who are the reapers, right? Well, the reapers are the people that share the gospel and the people become Christians, Right? And sometimes the sower and the reaper can be the same exact person. It's rare that happens, but sometimes it does happen. But in this sense, there's sowers and there's reapers, and the reapers are uh, taking in the reward, right? Because these people become Christians. That's an eternal reward. 38 says, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So laboring, the gospel, right, the, the, the work of evangelism is a labor that both sower and reaper have an obligation to partake in. The sower was doing the work, and the reaper has now entered into the work of the sower with hope of reward of that person becoming saved. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. We can see here Jesus God in the flesh, right? She knew who he was, and she went and proclaimed this message to the Samaritans, and they believed based off that testimony. Some people believed that this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. Some people listened, right? And they needed more information, and that's what they get here in verse 41, where he says, or I'm sorry, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days. That's kind of huge because Jews and Samaritans as we know, do not like each other, right? And they were willing to spend time with this Jewish rabbi for two days, just listening to what he had to say. They opened his, their homes to him, they gave him food, they provided for him. This person that they did not like very much, or at least the culture they did not like very much, they opened the doors to him. And many more believed because of his word. So there were people that were on the fence and then Jesus shared the gospel with them and he reaped in the reward of their salvation Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, 
For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they're not disparaging the woman's testimony. They're simply saying, hey, we, we trust what you said, we believe what you had to say, but now we've seen it for ourselves. We've heard the message from Jesus str- straight to us. And they say he's the Savior of the world. Savior of the world's talking about every tribe, tongue, nation. It's kind of reminiscent of Acts 1.8, which is obviously later. We're in the Gospel of John. But remember where he's going to the uh, Judeans, then he's going to the Samaritans, and then he's going to the ends of the earth, which are the Gentiles, right? This is that the first instance of that cross-cultural evangelism Jesus is, is doing here. So men, we need to eagerly enter into God's work, fueled by those rearranged priorities and understanding that God's message is powerful. And in order to do this, we have to first align our priorities with God's priorities. And that's point number one. We have to align your priorities with God's. Jesus shows us this important aspect, right? Jesus uh, was, was focused on the physical. The disciples were focused so much on the I'm sorry, Jesus was focused on the spiritual. The disciples were focused so much on the physical about meeting Jesus's needs. But Jesus had no care to meet his needs in that moment. What he was caring about was the soul that was in front of him that was lost. There was a mood shift of Jesus. As I said, we would get back to this. Verse 6 is talking about how Jesus was wearied. He needed food. He was hungry. But instead, he denied his flesh in order to do the work of God. Jesus set that standard, an example that you and I need to follow, right? Of course, it's the perfect example. It's the perfect standard, but that's how we should live. That's how we should approach people. That's how we should approach our needs, our physical needs. We need to focus on our spiritual needs. Letter A, subpoint here. You won't see it on the, on the notes, but um, that is prioritized, the spiritual over the physical. So where are our priorities Are we neglecting spiritual disciplines because we're hungry, right? I think that often can happen. I think about waking up in the morning on Monday, late for work, I need to go. So what I do, I get ready to go to work. I eat my breakfast. I'm like, I'll read my Bible later, right? Okay, that happens, guys. Life comes at us. We got to do those things. Sometimes it happens. But when that becomes a routine, that's when there's a problem. That's where our priorities are completely off base, and we need to rearrange those priorities. We have to make time for what is so much more important than food, and that's God's word. That's prayer. That's spending time with the Lord. That's doing God's work. So much more important. Are we neglecting discipleship of our kids and of our wife, of our family, because we're tired Right? We come home from work, a long day at work or long day at school, and we're thinking to ourselves, okay, this is, uh, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I just want to rest. I'm going to go to my garage, I'm going to turn on the TV, I'm just going to hang out. Now, I'm not saying rest is sinful, right? God set that example for us on day seven. He showed us, hey, rest is good, go take your rest. But when we continuously put our priority of rest over discipling our wives and over our family, our kids, that's where we fall short. We need to lead our wives, our family. Ephesians 5 is telling us that we need to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Ephesians 6.4 is telling us about uh, raising our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
We need to overcome that exhaustion that we have. Discipling our family is so far more important than getting that rest that we need after a long day at work. Are we rejecting gospel opportunities because of we just don't have the time, right? Think about, think about your day at work. You go to work, you're eating lunch, you pick up lunch, and you have so much work at your desk, you need to get back to it. And you're thinking, I'm, I'm so behind, I'm so overwhelmed, I need to get back to, to work. Again, that's good. Take care of your work. Be a good steward of work. However, you see an unbelieving friend eating lunch or a coworker, and instead of going up to that coworker and having that 20-minute conversation, we go to our desk, don't we? And we do the work. We neglect that conversation. And sometimes we don't, or sometimes we do. But that needs to be a consistent priority in our life. My work is so much less important than a chance to lead a lost soul to, the, to Jesus. We need to see ourselves as his ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I love this verse where Paul tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ. God, uh, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. And you think about an ambassador. An ambassador is someone who um, is, is like, Putting, is a representation of an image or a brand. Think about your company. You're, you are an ambassador for your company. They, are, uh, they have ownership over your time, over what you say, over what you do. That's what God has over us. We need to be good stewards of the time that God gives us, the words that we say, the people that we interact with, and we want to pray for those opportunities, seeking those opportunities to be an ambassador, a representative of Jesus Christ. We're not going to be a good representative if we're prioritizing our physical needs and our desires over the desires of God's. Letter B, be satisfied from doing the work of God. So what's God's work? As quickly, if you could, flip over to John 6, verse 38 through 40. Let's look at this together. Now, of course, I understand chronologically this is after what Jesus said, but we have the privilege of the full revelation of Scripture. So we can look here at John 6 and see what Jesus is talking about when he talks about doing the work of God. Verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God's work, God's will is winning souls. That's ultimately what this is all about. Jesus was hungry. Jesus needed food. Jesus needed drink. Jesus needed rest. But instead, he was satisfied and focused on accomplishing God's will. Think about when you serve the church. How do you feel? It's never, oh, man, that was a waste of my time. I hated doing that. Well, that was terrible. No, you're satisfied. You feel good about giving back to God for serving God for everything that he's given us. When you share the gospel with someone. Now, even if someone was to disparage you and call you names and just totally write you off, you still walk away feeling, doubt that was worth everything that I just did. Because the person just heard the gospel message. This person just listened, or uh, I just gave light to this person in this dark world. When you care for someone, or you counsel someone, or you spend time with someone, or fulfill the needs of someone, 
You don't walk away thinking, wow, that was the worst thing, terrible waste of time. I never want to do that again. No, we feel so much better about pouring into a brother in Christ, about caring for those and meeting the needs of those people. We feel satisfied when we do God's work, don't we? Deuteronomy 8.3. Let's turn there. Let's go to it. Deuteronomy 8.3. And I'll read it. It says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So we see this twofold satisfaction that happens. Our physical needs being met are good, right? Our spiritual needs are being met. That's good. But we need both of them in order to be fully satisfied. We're not fully satisfied by just our physical needs. And that looks like obedience to God's commands. That's obedience to the will of God, doing the work of God, evangelism, spending time in prayer and in God's word and serving people in the church. That's doing God's work. Okay, back to our text. Let's look at verse 35 again. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Again, remember, he's, he's looking at these Samaritan people that are coming to the disciples and he's telling the disciples, guys, look, they're ready to hear the gospel just as this, these crops are ready to be harvested. They're ready to be harvested. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. They can rejoice because they're doing the work of God. They're both, the sower and the reaper, involved in this, this labor of evangelism. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. There's two jobs there. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Again, the reapers are not a part of this yet until they finally share the gospel with these people. So just as the disciples were called by Christ to enter into the labor of evangelism, we are too, right? We need to embrace that call that Christ puts on our lives. And that's point number two. Eagerly embrace the call to evangelize. Eagerly embrace the call to evangelize. Have any of you done cold calling before in your life? Isn't it terrible? It is not fun. It's very hard. I'm in sales. I have to cold call. My, my whole livelihood is based off getting new customers and getting customers to buy more. Cold calling, if you don't know what it is, it's essentially someone who doesn't want to buy anything that you want to sell them, and you have to get them to buy something that you want to sell them. And they don't want to hear anything that you have to say. They don't want to be sold to. None of us like being sold to. That's what cold calling is. Sound fun? No, it's terrible. So think about this, though. What if we had some type of secret knowledge that every time that we cold called, 10, 15, 20, 100 times, somebody will uh, give you their business. You'll get a new customer. What if we knew every time, guaranteed, someone was going to uh, uh, buy the product that you're selling them? Well, that's kind of like evangelism. Now, hear me out. It's not like you're going to see every time someone's going to receive the gospel. But God promises us, he guarantees that there are souls that are out there ready to be won. 
There are souls that are out there that are ready to receive the message of the gospel. We have this guarantee, this promise from God that he will save people. And to me, I would be much, I, I'm much more willing to go cold call if I knew that somebody was going to uh, buy my product. So that's the type of mentality we have to have when we go into evangelizing. We have to, letter A, souls are ready to be one. But, uh, yeah, souls are ready to be one. This is, needs to be our mindset. Jesus, remember, in his divine omniscience, he's, he's God in the flesh, he knew the hearts of the Samaritans. So he was confidently telling the disciples, they're ready to hear the gospel. Now, of course, we don't have that privilege because we're not God. Yet we have the full revelation of scripture that tells us that there is that promise. And we can reach people. We can reap the harvest. God promises that he's building his church. Evangelism is not a vain task. It's essentially what I'm getting at. There's, there's fruit that comes from it. It's not meaningless. It's not a waste of time. And Jesus is even, even instilling this sense of urgency with the gospel. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See these people that are walking to hear what I have to say that will be saved at the end of this conversation. We see that urgency all throughout scripture. And we have to have this sense of urgency with those friends, with those coworkers, with those family members, with those people that vehemently reject the gospel. We have to have that sense of urgency with them because we have the message of eternal life. I mean, think about that. Think about that, that message that we have to give to these people. When the disciples went into the Samaritan town, they didn't share the gospel with anybody. And it was probably because of the cultural boundaries, like I talked about earlier, where right, Jews, Samaritans, they don't like each other. So the Jews were thinking, okay, there's no way that these people are going to, to listen to what I have to say. There's no way these people are going to be saved. There's no way that I can convince them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, oftentimes when we share the gospel with people, it's not a perfect opportunity. And we're always hoping that it is, right? I'm always hoping my neighbor comes out and says, oh, hey, Roy, you go to church? Who's Jesus? Tell me about him. I also heard he saves people. What's that all about? Well, yeah, I would, if God teed that up for me, I would hit it 400 yards down the driveway or a uh, fairway. But, I, but I, I can't, right? That's usually not what happens. Usually my neighbor comes out and be like, oh, you go to church? Okay, cool, bye. And runs back into his house. He doesn't want to hear what I have to say, right? We, can, we have to think about these uh, evangelistic efforts as uh, not perfect. Sometimes they're going to be messy, and we have to still be willing to go and share. Letter B, we have a job to do. So I kind of mixed it up on you guys. Verse, verses 37 and 38 is what this point's talking about, the sowers and the reapers, and then we'll get back to verse 36, just so you're, no one's confused here. There's two roles identified. We have the sower, we have the reaper. We need both in the work of evangelism, right? We have to invest in these unbelieving people we have to be willing to share our resources and our time and our care and our love for these people. And then if we never reap the reward of that, we can still be fine with that because we know that ultimately someone will, hopefully, Lord willing, that person will be saved. Our efforts in evangelism are never wasted. It's never lost time. God will use those, those moments. And both sower and, and reaper are always laboring. So I like the word labor because evangelism is hard work, right? 
It's not easy to tell someone the news, the, the worst news and the best news in the same conversation. Usually they don't even let you get to the best news. So we have to be willing to have those conversations. Galatians 6, 9 says, and I'll just read it for you. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. We have to be diligent in this effort. There's that temptation to be lazy when we think about sowing and reaping, when we think about evangelism. Yet as Christians, we just don't have that liberty. There's so many other things that we can be lazy on. Evangelism is not it. Evangelism is what we, we need to be doing. We need to, to enter this labor, enter this work of sharing the gospel with others. I trust that none of you guys, whether you're in college or you're uh, uh, working or retired, whatever it is, you're not lazy at your job. You're not lazy at your homework. You're not lazy at uh, uh, whatever you're doing in retirement. <laughs> I, you can see I'm not retired, so I'm not sure what's going on there. But you work hard right? Think about a job. You, you seek promotion. You seek raises. You seek financial gain. You seek recognition, and that's fine. God wants us to be hard workers in our occupations. But how much more in the job of evangelism, right, should we be motivated and excited? How much more? Because you think about the increase in your work is monetary. It's financial. It's temporal. But when we are working hard in the labor of evangelism, that's adding souls to the family of God, that's eternal souls that are now saved as a result of the conversation that we had. We should rejoice in that. And that's letter C, rejoice together in fruitful labor. So I jumped back up to verse 36. The sower and the reaper, they rejoice together. And they rejoice because their souls being one. Whether you sowed and another reaped, or reaped and another sowed, we can both rejoice because that hard work pays off ultimately. We are seeing people turn from their sinfulness and turn to King Jesus. People being brought from dead to life. People being resurrected to new life. Luke 15.10 says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner. If the angels are rejoicing, we ought to rejoice. If the angels are happy when someone turns from their sin and follows Christ, we ought to rejoice. And I'm sure that every single one of you in here would. I think that's an easy point to put into practice, to rejoice when someone becomes a Christian. It's an amazing thing when that happens. And we should take joy in that fruit. So verse 39, let's go back to our text again. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's, the woman's testimony, told me all that I ever did. Remember, this woman broke those, those social barriers and went out to tell these, these people in the town about Jesus. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He's probably just telling them all about himself. He's probably, Isaiah 53, he probably took him back there just as Philip did with the eunuch. Probably saying, hey, that's me. I'm, I'm that guy. I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but if I were to speculate, that's what it would be. Verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. The power that is seen in Jesus's message turned people from unbelief to belief. He spent two days with these people to convince them. I wish I could convince someone in two days 
to become a Christian. I wish I could do it in an hour. I wish I could do it in a day. And sometimes that happens. But in this case, it happened. The message of the gospel is powerful. Men, if we are going to be faithful in evangelism, we need to see that the gospel is powerful, right? That's point number three. Remember the gospel, or I'm sorry, remember the power of the gospel. Point number three, remember the power of the gospel. Okay, how many of you guys know that Pastor PJ's favorite ice cream is Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream? A couple? He says it all the time. I've heard him say it in the pulpit three or four times just in the last year, talking about he loves Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream. And I was saying to myself, chocolate peanut butter ice cream, I love chocolate, I love peanut butter, I even love Reese's peanut butter cups. I don't know if I want that in my ice cream. But I had the opportunity. I had the opportunity just this weekend to go eat Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream. I tried it. He was right. I'm a believer. He's been sharing the good news of Tillamook chocolate peanut butter ice cream for years, and I've rejected the gospel. I've rejected it, but I believe it now. I believe the good news. And now I have this zeal. He's changed my life. His passion, his zeal has changed my life. That is, I, I want that ice cream anytime I eat ice cream. I don't want any other ice cream, okay? Now, I'm, what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the gospel is something you just can try. The gospel is a command. We must submit to it. We must obey it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the power of the gospel is like someone's, their, 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 their zealousness, their, uh, their desire for people to know. That's the way that we need to approach the gospel message. And the power of eating that ice cream, realizing, wow, that's an amazing thing. I'm converted, right? Just as it changed our lives, the gospel, it's power to be life-changing, we have zeal and passion for Jesus Christ that's convincing to other people. Just as the zeal of that Samaritan woman, right? She went and proclaimed the message of Christ to these people. She recognized Jesus is the Messiah and I need the whole world to know it. I need all of my family. I need all these people. She broke those social barriers. Remember, she was divorced five times. She was, uh, uh, she's a woman in this, in this man-dominated society and they don't, they're not going to listen to her. But you know what? She didn't care. She wanted everyone to hear because she was convinced Jesus is the Messiah. We, she wanted everyone to know what happened. We ought to have that same zealousness. We ought to have that same passion for Jesus Christ. Do people know us? When, if I were to ask your friends, your family, or your coworkers, do they first and foremostly know me and you as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Christian do they know us as a salesperson who goes to church? Do they know me as a college student that goes to church? Do they know me as an accountant that goes to church? No, they first and foremostly must know us as a follower of Jesus Christ. That person will not stop talking about that man. People, as a result of being close to us, should know who Jesus is. They should know that this Jesus, they should know the the. What, who Jesus is and what he's done. Do people want to know more of it, of him, as a result of our passion and our zeal? Just as I wanted to know about chocolate peanut butter ice cream because Pastor PJ would not stop talking about it. It has the power to save souls. The gospel has the power to save souls. Jesus is the savior of the world. That's what the Samaritans proclaimed in our text here in verse 42. 
This is what it's all about, man. It's about seeing souls one. He's the savior from sin and death. He brings us into righteousness and new life. And that's only as a result of what Jesus Christ did. The gospel has the power, as I said earlier, to spiritually resurrect people from the dead. I mean, think about that message that we have to proclaim to people. I'm not, it's not the message of me sharing my favorite ice creams, chocolate peanut butter ice cream, although convincing. This is a message of the gospel that brings people literally from death to life. How can we not proclaim this message? Jesus has given us this message. He's entrusted us as Christians to go and tell the world. He's entrusted us as Christians to tell our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our unbelieving family members. He's entrusted us with that message. That's a privilege, that's an honor, and we ought to proclaim it. Turn with me to uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And if you've been Christian long enough, you know this passage well. Probably memorized it. It's a passage that we're all very familiar with. Talking about that deadness brought into new life. But I want to remind you tonight of this passage. I want you to remind you of what it means. I mean, this is like the tech, what technically happens when someone receives the gospel and becomes a Christian. I want to remind you about the power of the gospel. And we see it here. And I'll read it for you. Ephesians 2, starting verse 1, we'll go to verse 9. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. Spiritually gone. Of course, you're walking around, but you're like a zombie. You're spiritually dead, but you're physically doing things. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only were we dead, when we are outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. We are hostile to God. We do not care for the things of the Lord. Unbelievers do not care for the things of the Lord. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. They're under God's wrath. And then verse four, those two powerful words, the beauty of the gospel is encapsulated in the words, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead, but he loved us and he cared for us and he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. He lived and died and resurrected in our place. We deserved none of it. Yet he graciously gave it to us. And that's what it says here. By grace you've been saved. Verse six. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So not only did he give us eternal life, not only did he resurrect us from our deadness into new life, but he's now giving us this inheritance that only Jesus deserves. And he's saying, hey, they can have it too. It's because of my righteousness. They can also inherit this new life. They can also inherit eternal life. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what that that is. The immeasurable riches of God's grace. It's kind towards us in Jesus. And here's the, the, the verse that we all know and we all love. 
Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. How amazing is that? That we cannot earn our salvation. Men, if you've been a Christian long enough, this is a familiar passage. This, I'm, not, I'm not telling you anything new. However, I want you to be reminded that this is what the power of the gospel does. It being, brings people from death to life. And it's not because of anything that they can do. It's because of the grace of God, the kindness of our Lord and Savior. We deserved his wrath, we deserved judgment, yet he showed us grace and righteousness. Verse 9, not a result of your works that no one may boast. We cannot boast in our salvation. We can only boast in Christ because it's what he did. Now the Samaritans, they understood this, right? They were convinced of this message that Jesus presented them, of course, They didn't have the full revelation of scripture. They don't have Ephesians 2. They're not reading Ephesians 2. We can. So we have that benefit. We have that privilege of seeing it. But they still saw who Jesus was. They still saw the message that he delivered and they believed. The power of the gospel holds. The gospel message, let it be a motivator to pursue God's will over our own desires, our own cares and needs Let let us prioritize the things of God instead of the the things of us, instead of the things that we want to be doing. And let the power of the gospel gospel lead us eagerly and urgently into that labor, into that call of evangelism. And finally, let the power of the gospel encourage us and motivate us as we know that fruit can come people will be saved. God has set people up, appointed people to salvation, and it's up to us to share Christ with them. It reminds us of our own salvation, and it's it's humbling that I, I too was a sinner. All the Christians in here, too, were sinners, and yet are saved as a gift of God's grace. So I pray that you're motivated by this this week. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful to you for this message, for these men, for this opportunity. God, I'm grateful to you that we can hear from your word about evangelism, about sharing the amazing message of Jesus Christ, about sharing the gospel with people who are unsaved. God, I pray that this week our priorities are aligned with yours, that our priorities are in tune with what you desire, not what we desire. uh, what what you call us to do in your work and not what we want to work on. God, I also want to pray that we can see and be reminded by the power of the gospel as we go into this week knowing that people will be saved by this message, that souls are being won and you've entrusted us with that message to deliver it. God, help us to be faithful stewards of that message and faithful to do your work this week. We love you, Lord, and we're so grateful and thankful to you for salvation. And in Jesus' name, amen.